Well, let me add my welcome to you this morning. Uh, to everyone who's here in person, uh, welcome. Thanks for braving the heat. Uh, I'm glad we've got some fans going to try and make it a little bit more bearable in here. And to everyone who's watching in online, uh, we're so glad that you can join from the comfort of your home. I hope you've got some AC or, or something. I don't know which camera to look to. I, I hope it's a little bit cooler where you are than where we are. <laughs> um, but welcome to you. Uh, I also see some kids in the back. I want to say a special welcome to the kids. Uh, and can I give you a little task today, a special task? Uh, today, our passages talk about uh, God's people being thirsty, and he ends up giving them water to drink. And so I'd like to uh, invite you uh, in the back to just, as I'm preaching, just to draw a picture of what it looks like for God to give us a glass of water to drink. And if, if, if you do that at the end, you want to share it with us, we'd love to see that. And to the, all the adults, too, if, if you want to draw a picture, you're welcome to do that as well. Um, and if you really want to share it with us at the end, we can do that for you as well. Um, but as we begin, let me just uh, pray quickly. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have spoken to us through your word, and that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, as we come now to um, sit and attend to these old words and stories of your people and how you provided in the past, Lord, may we hear you speak afresh to us today. Lord, may you give us ears to hear your voice and may you soften our hearts. And as we come now to your word, Lord, may, may you speak to us afresh and may our lives never be the same. In your name we pray. Amen. On December 30th, 1935, at 2.30 in the morning, there's a small little plane flying over the Sahara Desert. Uh, it was a two-seater prop plane flown by Antoine and his co-pilot Andre, and they were attempting to set the, the flight record for the fastest flight from Paris to Saigon. Uh, things were looking good. They were 19 and a half hours in, which is a really long flight time, uh, and they were on pace, miraculously, and were now somewhere flying over the Sahara. But 15 minutes later, something started to go wrong. Uh, their engine failed, and they crashed in the middle of the desert. Now, miraculously, they both survived the crash, and they were able to pick themselves up and dust themselves off. And looking around, they decided that they should take inventory of, of what they had to survive with. Uh, between the two of them, they had a handful of grapes, a thermos of coffee, a single orange, one day's worth of water, and, and because they were good Frenchmen, they also had a bottle of wine. And as they took stock of their situation, it, it began to sink in. They had just crashed in the middle of the largest desert in the world. They had no supplies, little idea of where they were, and no one knew what had happened to them. Their supplies ran out quickly. Uh, they saw mirages and hallucinations. And by the end of their third day, they were so dehydrated that they had stopped sweating altogether. Finally, four days after their crash, Antoine and Andre were found wandering in the desert by one of the local tribes who took them in and nursed them back to health. Our passages today paint a similar picture. The Israelites are wandering in the wilderness and they can't find any water. Just three days prior, they had seen God do an amazing work. He parted the Red Sea and delivered them from Egypt. They had seen his provision and his protection. 
They knew that God was on their side. But that was three days ago. And for three long, hot days, they've been wandering through the wilderness. They're uncomfortable. They're thirsty. They're desperate. And they're beginning to doubt that whether God is really with them. At the heart of these two stories, we find that God's people are not just uncomfortable and thirsty, but they've stopped trusting God because of it. So the question I want to explore with us today is this. How does God respond to us when we stop trusting in his goodness? How does God respond to us when we stop trusting in his goodness? Uh, We're going to approach this in two parts. First, we're going to look at how God's people stopped trusting in his goodness. uh, And then we'll come back and look at God's response to them. So how how did God's people stop trusting in his goodness? Uh, If you have your Bible, I invite you to look with me at Exodus 15, uh, verse 22, and it'll be on the screen behind me. Then Moses made Israel sit out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now this comes on the tail of everything that's just happened at the Red Sea. If you've been following along with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that we're going through a series called Wilderness. And we're looking at how God delivered his people from Egypt out of slavery. And how he led his people into the wilderness for 40 years. The last few weeks, we've looked at how God freed his people from slavery in Egypt and rescued them from Pharaoh's army by parting the Red Sea. It's fresh in their minds. God's been on the move, doing mighty works and deeds. It's exciting, terrifying, but it's exhilarating. And now they're on their way to this land which God promised them long ago, the land of their ancestors, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But it's a long way away. And before they can get there, they have to pass through the wilderness. They made it three days into their journey. It's been three days since God delivered them at the Red Sea. And as they're walking along, I can just imagine the children looking at their parents and saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? What about now? Eventually, the the incessant questions fade into silence as they keep moving on their long family road trip. A silence that's broken by a long, quiet, but desperate whine. I'm thirsty. Finally, after three long, hot days, they come to Marah, and they find water. But we read in verse 23, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah, because it was bitter. Therefore, they named it Marah. So they find water, but they can't drink it. It's bitter, sour, with this pungent and putrid smell and taste. What are they to do? We see a similar situation arise in our other passage today, in Exodus chapter 17. In verse 1, we read, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. And just as a quick aside, isn't that the most ominous name for a place ever? The wilderness of sin. I I can almost hear a narrator from a TV show from the 1960s who would say something like, Join us next time 
as our heroes make their way through the wilderness of sin. It's really, being, being the soundtrack, I know we can do that. It's fun. Um, it's, it's a bit of a coincidental name. Uh, it's not called that because the people sinned there, although they did, but that's not whether it gets its name. Uh, it's just called that, it, it's the literal translation and transliteration, um, and it's, it's not meant to have a connection to the transgressions and, and the things that the people of Israel did wrong. Uh, it's just kind of this weird thing with language and translation. So our heroes emerged from the wilderness of sin, and we continue reading that this was, in verse 2, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, I'm keenly aware of the fact that they were desperate for water. Both here in chapter 17 and earlier in chapter 15, they were thirsty. And their thirst led them to a place of desperation. After all, we need water to live. It's a situation of life or death. And I think it's quite reasonable for them to be asking, like, hey, God, where are we going to get water to drink? We need to drink something. I would certainly be asking that too. But the thing is, these aren't isolated and unrelated stories and accounts. It's not like these are two different groups of people wandering around in the wilderness and just wondering where they're going to get a drink of water from. And it's the exact same group of people, an exact same generation of people in both of these accounts. It's the same group that had been slaves in Egypt. It's the same people who walked through the Red Sea. I mean, think about this for a second. Uh, these two really similar accounts to the exact same people. And in chapter 17 comes after chapter 15, because that's how chapter numbers work normally. So in, in coming into this account in chapter 17, before we even know how things get resolved in Marah in chapter 15, we have to conclude that God showed up and did something. By virtue of the existence of chapter 17, we know that this dire situation, their desperation, it gets resolved. The commentator Peter Enns points out, to have two similar episodes so close to each other in the narrative points out the absurdity of Israel's lack of trust in God. You see, there's something more going on in these passages than just people being thirsty and needing a drink. They needed water. They were desperate for water, and God knew that. It's not like it came as a surprise to God that they needed water to drink. He made them. It's not as though the Israelites are saying, hey God, I'm thirsty, and now God's up there just scratching his chin thinking, huh, I didn't see that one coming. What am I going to do? No, he, he created people. He created us. He knows we need to drink because he made us that way. See, the big issue in these passages isn't that God's people are thirsty, even, even though they are thirsty, but the issue is that they don't trust him. They don't trust him. God had just led them out of slavery. They're a free people. But three days later, all they found to drink is the bitter waters of Marah. 
It's so disillusioning and bitter that they call the very place they have found Marah. And this is actually where the, the translation in the English is actually really helpful and where it's intentional. Because Marah means bitterness. This place they found in the wilderness is a place of bitterness. In verse 24 we read, And the people grumbled against Moses. The water is bitter. The land is bitter. The people are grumbling. Are they also bitter? Bitter about the unknown? Bitter about their provisions and the lack thereof? Bitter about the man who who led them there? Bitter towards God? Mariah, in the place of bitterness, has God's people not also become bitter too? Bitterness is a reaction we have in response to something, usually in response to something not going the way that we wanted it to go, not going the way that we had hoped. Uh, Martin Luther King once preached a sermon called Shattered Dreams, and in it he explored what happens when dreams are not fulfilled. And he asks the question, what do we do when our highest hopes are not satisfied? What is it that we actually end up doing when our hopes and dreams get shattered? And I suspect all of us can identify with something that's gone wrong or has been disappointing for us, including that fan almost falling over over there. Uh, And in the last year, a lot of things haven't gone the way that we had hoped. King identifies three responses that people often have in response to disappointment in life. He says that we can become bitter, we can withdraw, or we can resign ourselves to inescapable fatalism. And he says that all three of these, fatalism, withdrawal, and bitterness, are equally tragic and equally dangerous, especially for our souls. Fatalism, he says, leads us to becoming like puppets, leaving us helplessly inadequate for life. And he explains that withdrawal leads to detachment and to crippling cynicism. And perhaps one of those two responses resonates with you. Maybe it stands out and you're like, oh, I identify with that. And, and I wish I had more time to dig into these two. Uh, but I want to draw our attention right now to what King said about bitterness. He said, one possible reaction is to distill all of our frustrations into a core of bitterness and resentment. The person who pursues this path is likely to develop a callous attitude, a cold heart, and a bitter hatred towards God, towards those with whom he lives, and toward himself. Such a reaction poisons the soul and scars the personality, always harming the person who harbors this feeling more than anyone else. Bitterness poisons the soul and scars the personality, and it always harms us more than anyone else. C.S. Lewis compared it to drinking a glass of poison and waiting for the other person to die. Bitterness is dangerous. And in fact, Scripture warns us about bitterness. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, we read, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See, there's something about bitterness that can keep us from receiving God's grace. 
It's a response we have to a disappointment which does something to our hearts to turn us against God. Bitterness calls our heart towards God. And it causes us to stop trusting in His goodness. It causes us to stop trusting in God's goodness. And in the wilderness, the people of God turned bitter and they'd stopped trusting in God's goodness. They were in the middle of the wilderness at Marah. They had bitter water that they couldn't drink. And at Rephidim, again, they had no water. They had become bitter and had stopped trusting in his goodness. So, so how does God respond to us when we've stopped trusting in his goodness? How did God respond to Israel? In their grumbling and in their quarreling, the Israelites go to Moses. They go to Moses and complain that there's no water. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 3, they say, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They're not holding back any punches. Why did you bring us out here to die? We were better off as slaves back in Egypt. And both times, Moses cries to the Lord, both times, the Lord answers. At Morar, in chapter 15, verse 25, we read, And Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. In Morar, there was water, but it was bitter. It's kind of like drinking from a poisoned well. And God has Moses throw a log into the water. And then the water becomes sweet. It's the same water as the exact same water supply. But now there's something added to it. God shows Moses a log. It's just a piece of wood. This wood that God gave to Moses, though, it made the water not just tolerable and drinkable. It made the water sweet. Not just drinkable but delightable and enjoyable. How's that in the face of bitterness? Not just making life doable, but a joy. In the face of their bitterness and distrust, God doesn't merely appease them. He didn't just give them the bare essentials. He gave them something to delight in. He made the water sweet. And God made a hostile and bitter land not just tolerable, but delightable and enjoyable. Not only that, but then he leads them to an oasis at Adam. We read in verse 27 that they came to Adam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. In the place of bitterness and desperation, God doesn't just give them water. He counters their bitterness with sweetness. And then he leads them into an oasis, a stopping ground where there's plenty of water, and where there's plenty of shade. In the face of their distrust, God takes them to a place where they can rest and recover. He responds to them with grace. And it wasn't just a, in the place of bitterness that he provided for them in their desperation. He gave them water in Rephidim too. In chapter 17, verse 5, we read, and the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, 
and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Now, Horeb means dry and desolate. It's arid. It's a desert. It's not a suitable place for someone to find water. When Moses cries to the Lord in Rephidim, God answers, and he says, go to the driest place that there is. Go to that rock where there couldn't be any moisture, the place where water could never, ever be found. Go to that place where there can be no mistaking what is happening, the place where water must come from nothing, the place where God must make the water from nothing. Go to that place and and take the same staff that became a snake before Pharaoh, the same staff which saw the Nile turn to blood. Bring that staff of judgment, which made the drinkable sweet water of the Nile bitter and undrinkable in Egypt, because by that same staff, water will now spring forth from the rock. So Moses does it. He grabs the staff and he goes to the rock with the people, and he hits it. And God stands before him there at the rock. And as he strikes the rock, water springs forth out of this rock, and it comes out and people can drink. The same staff which weighed judgment upon Egypt now brings a spring of life to God's people. The means of judgment to the one is the same means of life and salvation to the other. At Marah and Rephidim, God responds with power and with grace. Once more, he works a mighty deed in their midst. The same God who sent plagues and parted the sea to free his people has now made bitter water sweet. The commentator Peter Enns says, like Pharaoh before them, how many times do they need to see God work before they understand? They still do not see that he has their best interests in mind that he has moved mightily from the time of the patriarchs to come to this moment, and he will not let a little thing like a water supply stand in the way. God has their best interests in mind. That's why he freed them from slavery. God has their best interests in mind. The same God who made a way through the sea isn't going to let a little water supply get in the way. When we stop trusting in God's goodness, he still has our best interests in mind. He's still good. And when we doubt his goodness, God is still good. When we don't trust his goodness and don't trust in his goodness, he responds to us with grace. The Israelites experienced the desperation and disappointment of discomfort in the wilderness. They were thirsty and stopped trusting in God's goodness. We might not be as desperate for thirst as, as they were, although we should drink a lot today because it's hot, but we have, not, have we not all faced disappointments in life too? Many of us have experienced some kind of loss, loss of a job, of a friend, a loved one, the loss of a dream, or a home, or a community. And in our nation, we continue to uncover the bodies of dead children who are plucked from their homes. 
and too often suffered abuse and neglect to the point of death by people who said that they were operating and working in the name of God. Our world is still being ravaged by a virus. And while things are starting to look a little bit brighter here, there are many places in our world that are still struggling, where people are still dying and where there's still no relief. It's so easy to stop trusting in God's goodness when our world looks the way that it does. When so many church leaders seem to have forsaken their faith for the sake of power, when so many of our dreams have been shattered. Uh, I was reminded this week of a song by a band called Beautiful Eulogy. And the lyrics go, This world exists because you've commanded it. So is your hand in it? Or have you handed it over to man and turned away and abandoned it? Did you try your best and then left man to handle the rest? Will your plans find success or should we second guess? When world leaders are deceivers eager to puff their chests, is life a game of chess? Do you have these kings in check? With so much evil, how can we believe you're good? But I finally understood when I saw that man nailed to wood. Both times when Moses cried out and calls out to God, God shows him an instrument. Not an instrument like a harp or a guitar. It's more of an object. It's the instrument of a log. The instrument of a staff. A log, a piece of wood. It's that which turns the bitter water and makes it sweet. It's a staff, a whittled branch that gushes springs of water in the driest places. When the people of God stopped trusting in his goodness in the midst of the wilderness, when they were desperate and thirsty and needed a drink, he doesn't make a defense for why things are the way that they are. He doesn't explain why. He just, God responds by putting his goodness in full display. God directs Moses to instruments of wood. And he shows his goodness to his people with wood. And this log and this staff, they, they point us to what was to come. They direct us to another instrument of wood. They point us to the cross. And the cross is not an excuse for evil. It opposes it. The cross is not a screen for darkness. It shines light on it. The cross is not a victory for sin, but it's the defeat of sin and death. On the cross, God put his goodness on full display. It's the log that turns bitterness into joy. It's the stick which struck forth rivers of living water. It's the wood where Jesus hung to take away your sins and mine. The cross is the greatest instrument of God's goodness, and it's his greatest saving power. For not only did he die to take away our sins, but he rose again and conquered the grave. But how does God respond to us when we stop trusting in his goodness? He responds with love and grace. He responds with a cross. And with his love, he can make the bitter waters of Marah become sweet. 
his forgiveness and grace, make the waters in the wilderness become a delight. And with his grace, he can make the dry stones of Horeb spring forth fountains of living water. There's no greater display of God's goodness than the cross. And God didn't really answer the question of Israel's people in those places. He doesn't always give us answers to our questions either. But he always gives us himself. In the book of Revelation, we get a picture of God's goodness towards his people. In chapter 7, we see a multitude of people gathered around the throne of God. People gathered from every nation and tribe and tongue. And then in verse 16, it says, They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When we stop trusting in God's goodness, he responds with love and with grace. He leads us to springs of living water. He gives us water to drink. He makes it sweet. And in his love, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And he will do it because he is good. Will you pray with me?